in our society, we are so surrounded by advertising uh, and the overstatement that comes with advertising uh, that, we, that we get used to it. We almost discount everything because everything is overstated. So, for instance, uh, Red Bull. I've never had a Red Bull, uh, but Red Bull supposedly gives you wings. I assume that there are other people who are drinking Red Bull, and I've never seen anybody with wings, either literally or figuratively. Like, I don't see people being brought up by a little caffeine and some amino acids. It just doesn't, doesn't happen that way. It's, it's overstatement. It's, it's puffery. I wonder if we think the same way about God's judgment in the book of Revelation. Is it just, is it just overstatement? Is it just exaggeration? Is it just uh, preacher's puffery to kind of get people's attention or to try and really turn the screws on people and really try and get them to, to, to make some kind of change or make some kind of decision? Is that, is that what it is? Is it overstatement? God is not given to overstatement. God is not advertising for you to buy his product. God created the world. He created the heavens and the earth. He created us. He deserves our glory. And his, his wrath against the unbelieving is not an overstatement. It is reality. It is the reality of the future for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ. That's what I hope you'll see today is that the wrath of God is not an overstatement. It is the truth. And the converse is also true. The same way that we cannot overstate the wrath of God is the same way that we cannot overstate the grace of God in saving us from his wrath. Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15. Start there in in verse 5. Revelation 15, starting in verse 5. What I want you to see first is retribution. Retribution. Revelation uh, chapter 15, starting with verse 5. We're going to read into chapter 16 as well. Revelation chapter 15, verse 5, retribution. Let's start there. It says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And this is chapter 16, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one. Who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, just, true, and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, 
and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Look back at chapter 15, verse 5. That picks up from verse 1, which is the introduction to what we normally call the bowl judgments. So there are these series of judgments in the book of Revelation, starting with the, what are called the seal judgments in chapters 6 and 7, and then there are the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 through 11, and now we come to the last series of judgments, which are the, the bowl judgments. You see where these are coming from. They are, are, are seeing, John is seeing these things come from the sanctuary of the tent of witness. That is, this is the, the heavenly sanctuary, the heavenly tent, the heavenly place of, of God's dwelling. It is from God's presence. Uh, he sees the sanctuary and he sees these seven angels uh, coming out with the seven plagues. They are clothed in pure, bright linen. They are pure, they are pure angels of God who are dispensing these plagues on the earth or plagues on uh, the unbelieving. They have golden sashes around their chest, uh, similar to the way that Jesus is pictured in, in chapter 1. They are associated with Jesus Christ. They are the ones who are dispensing the, the judgments of Jesus Christ. And you look there in verse 7. Uh, you have one of the four living creatures. If you remember way back when we first began uh, the book of Revelation, the four living creatures represent animate creation that is all creation is crying out for the judgments of god uh, creation is in a sense that these these first four judgments are on creation or on uh, what god uh, on nature and they are they are ready to see god judge the earth uh, the same way that we look at some place like Romans 8, where it talks about creation groaning for the redemption of the sons of god groaning for the coming of jesus christ and the living creatures give these seven bowls. They are bowls full of the wrath of God. The wrath of God from the God who lives forever and ever, the, the never-ending God, the, the God who lives always. And the same as in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is built and is so filled with the glory of God that not even Moses, not even Moses who's been on the mountaintop where God is, where God clothed himself with smoke, not even he can go into the sanctuary so nobody can enter into God's presence until these final seven plagues or these seven judgments are finished. We look in chapter 16. Yeah, this loud voice coming again from God's presence from the temple it's crying out, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now these, these judgments that are talked about as the, the bowl judgments are really similar to uh, the ten plagues that God poured out on Egypt uh, in the book of Exodus. That is, uh, God uh, or uh, Egypt, the Pharaoh, had, had enslaved the, the people of Israel. And in order to free them... God sent these plagues on Egypt. God plundered the Egyptians is the way he described it. God, God fought for Israel. Israel didn't lift, a, didn't lift a sword. They didn't fight in a battle. God fought for them and plundered them and brought them out of, out of slavery. Same, same kinds of plagues. They're also very similar. They're, that You can match them with the seven trumpet judgments. Only there's one big difference between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. The, the first four, say, trumpet judgments are on, the, on creation, on the earth, or on the waters, or on the sea, or, or on the sun. Except 
in the trumpet judgments, they only affect a third of mankind. Only a third of the earth, or only a third of the sun, or only a third of the sea. Here, with the bold judgments, the judgment is complete. There is no, there is no limiting of God's actions against the unbelieving. Pick up that first plague in, in verse 2. And, and even just one thing to observe here is that, that unlike with the, the, the seal judgments or the trumpet judgments, there are no interludes, there are no, there's no kind of break, uh, there's, no, there's no kind of everything. It, it, is, it is really, if you imagine someone, as it was in the first century, someone reading this for an entire congregation, it is now coming quick. It's now coming staccato. It's now coming bang, 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 judgment upon judgment upon judgment. You have that first judgment there where the angel pours out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores come upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. That is, they bore the mark of the beast, and now they are bearing the mark of God, of, of these boils and these plagues upon their bodies. Now, like a lot of places in the book of Revelation, I think, I think this judgment does not necessarily require that there be literal painful sores on people. Uh, but when I say that it is symbolic or using symbolic language, I don't, some of us might think, well, you're talking about symbolism. That must mean that the reality is not as bad. That's not what I mean at all. The reason why the book of Revelation uses so much symbolism is because it is, it is not possible to state literally the judgment of God that comes on the unbelieving. The, the judgment is not less than boils on your body. The judgment is greater than the boils on, their, on your body. It is like the boils on your body. It is striking your body. But it's much worse than anything that's ever been before. It's worse than the plague in Egypt. It's worse than anything that's come on mankind before. One of the things that we also, you should also think about, and we're kind of going back to those ten plagues in Egypt, is that the, the plague of boils was the first plague that struck people's bodies. Earlier plagues had struck their water, or it had uh, ca- caused the flies or gnats, maybe, maybe just bother some things, or maybe there had been, there had been trouble on their, their livestock, or, but this one was God striking their bodies directly. You look at this bold judgment, it is about God being able to strike your body. You think about this in the context that, the, that these churches are dealing with. Their bodies are threatened the beast, which is this image of the beastly state or this government that is persecuting them, it is threatening their bodies. It's saying, you either, you either worship the beast, you bow down to the beast, or, or we'll hurt you. We'll take away, we'll, we'll starve you, we'll imprison you, we'll even kill you. We'll, we'll hurt your body. And God says, why do you fear what men can do to your body? Don't. Fear what God does to your body. God made your body. God rules over your body. God can strike your body. A lot of people will say something along the lines of, man, I'd give all the wealth in the world to be healthy again. To have my body whole again. God 
is able to strike your body. And God is also able to raise your body like he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God rules over your body. That next bowl, the second bowl in verse 3, this bowl is poured out in the sea. And all the sea becomes like a blood, uh, blood of a corpse and every living thing died. About when we looked at the trumpet judgments, this, the, the sea is the symbol of commerce. The, the, the maritime uh, shipping industry in the Mediterranean Sea, that was, a, that was a symbol of commerce. It was a symbol of making money, of, of living by money, trusting in money. And now it's all taken away. One of the things that people have always done is they have always trusted in money and possessions instead of God, the creator. They believe that money would give them pleasure or money would give them security or money would give them comfort. And what is, what is threatened by the world? Sometimes the, the threat is we'll, we'll take away your money. We'll take away your possessions. Don't trust in commerce. Don't trust in your ability to make money. Don't trust in the money you've made. Don't trust in your possessions. God gives us many good things. It's not, not to say that commerce is not good and, 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 and wise and, and Christians engage in it. But we do not put our hope in money. Money will be destroyed. All our possessions will rust and be eaten by moths and be burned up in the end. Don't trust in, in commerce. Don't trust in money. Don't bow down to idols. Don't be greedy or covetous. Trust God. God gives good things to enjoy. We should be thanking him. We should be using what God has given us for his glory. That third bowl, starting in verse 4, says the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. Uh, in the trumpet judgment, the, the, the waters and the rivers are, are struck and they are made bitter. God made life bitter for those who are unbelieving. But this is, this is not a, it's no longer limited to the bitterness of life. It is the taking of life away. Water is the symbol of life. Without water, you will die. God takes away life from those who do not trust in him, who do not repent, who do not bow down to his, his Christ, his king, Jesus Christ. And you look at the rest of verse 4 and verse 5, there's, there's this call and response in response to this, this third bowl. The angel says... Just are you, O holy God, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. I think that the world does not agree with that. It's a big, the world's big problem with hell or judgment or God's wrath. Man, this is, I can't believe that Christians believe this. This is totally out of proportion with, with, with our sin what, what is the, the judgment that fits for those who deny their creator? Is it not that their bodies would be struck? 
God's judgments are just. It's one of the things that, though, though this is not my favorite topic, it is one that we should not shrink back from. Because we are Christians, we are believers in God and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what we say about God. God is just. God is the very standard and measure of justice. All that he is, all that he is and all that he does is just, always and forever, always, each and every incident, each and every incident that has ever happened in the, in the history of the world Whatever he meets out on anybody, however he punishes anyone, whatever consequences we face, they are just. God is just. When we talk about our justice, we are talking about meeting a measure. God is the measure of justice. God is just. He brings these judgments. They are are drinking blood in this judgment. The angel says in verse, verse 6, For they shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then there's a response in verse 7. From the altar. If you remember back in chapter 6, there were the, the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints whose blood was shed. And they said, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Now they're not saying that anymore. They're not saying how long. They're saying yes. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God is giving out retribution. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. An exact measure of judgment against those who do wrong. What is the judgment that fits those who deny their creator? Is it not that their bodies would be struck? What is it, what is the fitting judgment for those who would bow down to what God made, who would worship money and possessions, than to have all of those good things taken away? We enjoy life and breath. We enjoy food and drink. And yet we do not thank God for those things. We do not praise and glorify God for those things. What, what is the fitting judgment for that except to have that taken away? What is the fitting judgment for those who do not look for life in God? Is it not to have that life taken away? What is the fitting judgment for those who shed the blood of the saints and prophets? That is, the, those who are God's holy ones, those who bear prophetic witness the way we saw in chapter 11. What is the fitting judgment for those who shed the blood of the saints and prophets? Is it not to have their blood shed? That is the fitting response. God gives retribution. Now that we have to ask some questions here, doesn't God teach us to turn the other cheek? Doesn't God teach us not to seek out personal vengeance? Indeed, God does. The reason why we're able to do that is because we trust God with judgment. We trust God to avenge us. Romans 12, Paul says, never avenge yourselves. Because the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The reason why we're able to return blessing for evil return good for evil is because we trust God. 
The, the vengeance of God in the future is what makes love possible today. It's what makes compassion and mercy and forgiveness possible now. If we think there's not a God who, who's going to do justice later, then, then we feel this, this pull to make it happen now. We don't have to do that. Even if we recognize that sometimes the, the governing authorities, they avenge wrongdoing. It's rightly why God instituted them. What about when that fails? What do we do? 1 Peter 4, Peter tells us, God tells us, continue to do good while entrusting yourselves to a faithful creator. God watches out for us. We can, we can rejoice in God's justice and love people now because we don't have to seek justice now. We don't, we don't have to seek vengeance now. We don't retaliate personally against people. Because we trust God. But God, we have a hard time understanding the idea of retribution. That is, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. The punishment fits the crime. I think we have a hard time understanding that in our society because we almost universally think of punishment as corrective or rehabilitative. So what do we call our prisons? We call them correctional facilities. Sometimes God does punish to bring about correction. In fact, God corrects those whom he loves. Not saying that punishment doesn't bring about correction or it doesn't in some cases rehabilitate or change people. But there is God's retributive judgment. Sometimes judgment, sometimes punishment is because it is deserved. It's not to change somebody. The trumpet judgments were these partial judgments that in some sense were a warning. They were a warning to people to turn. But when you get to this point, the warning is over. There's a point at which for every human being, the warnings are going to be over. There are going to be no more warnings. There are going to be no more opportunities. There's going to be no more patience. God is slow to to anger, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished. One day there are no more warnings. There is retribution. There is a punishment that fits the crime, that fits the crime of rejecting your creator, rejecting the goodness of your creator, rejecting the life that your creator gives, rejecting that leads to eternal death. We also see this retributive justice at the cross. Jesus Christ's body was struck. It was struck. Not just struck by men, it was struck by God. God struck Christ's body with his wrath. Why don't we look at bowl after bowl after bowl of God's judgment? Because that is the judgment that was poured out on Jesus Christ for our sins. His body was struck so that our bodies would not be struck. His body was struck so that our bodies would be raised. Jesus had every good thing taken away from him. Every good thing. They, they sat at the foot of the cross and they gambled over his last piece of clothing. 
He, he, was, he was crucified naked because they took everything from him. We deserve to have everything taken from us. Every good thing. Every, every piece of food, every drop of water, every good thing, every good thing that we know in life, we have, deserve to have it stripped from us because of our sin. And yet Christ was stripped. Christ was stripped for us. They gambled for his last garment because that's what we deserved, and he took it on himself. On the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. We deserve to spend an eternity thirsting. We deserve to spend an eternity with no life-giving water. Jesus Christ thirsted on the cross for us. Jesus Christ, his blood was shed for us so that our blood would not be shed. You, you want to see retributive justice at its fullest? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ because on the cross of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, the bowls of the wrath of God, bowl after bowl after bowl were poured out on Jesus Christ so that he would take the wrath of God for us, so that he would be a propitiation, that is a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. We look at these bowls here and we see this is what we deserve. And Christ took it. Christ took it in our place. We can't sing about amazing grace without also singing about our fears being relieved. Do you look at these bowls and are you afraid? You, you ought to be. And yet the grace of God displayed in the death of Jesus Christ takes our fears away. Trust in Jesus Christ. His body was struck his goods taken away, his life taken away, so that we would have life. We would have eternal life in him. See, one more bowl, that verse, verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and was allowed to scorch people with fire. This is this fearsome kind of bird burning they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent. They did not repent and give him glory. This kind of anger in the face of God is not uncommon. In fact, I think it's, I think it's more common than not. If there's any, any pain or discomfort in our life, if we have any thought of God at all, we think, why, why God, are you allowing this to happen to me? Why, why God? When in fact, the consequences of sin ought to be waking us up to repent toward God. To turn toward God. To trust God. They look here, 
they do not repent and they do not give him glory. I hope that's not us. I hope that's not anybody here. Let us trust in Christ. Why do we have to look at these bowls of God's wrath? The reason why we look at these bowls of God's wrath is because every expression of God's wrath magnifies God's grace. Every expression of God's wrath, anywhere in the scriptures, every expression of God's wrath here in Revelation chapter 16, every expression of God's wrath in the whole of Revelation, every expression of God's wrath is a magnification of his grace. Do you want to understand how much God loves you? How much Christ loves you? How gracious Christ is toward you? Think about how, how great your fears should be and how great it is to have your fears relieved. Have those fears taken away. To have no fear of judgment, no fear of condemnation. We who trust in Jesus Christ know the grace of God. It might be a lot bigger than we've thought of it before. It might be that the only way to get some of us to think about how gracious God has been toward us in Christ Jesus is, to, is for us to think about how much wrath we deserve. We look at God's wrath and we see how great God's grace is. It highlights, it magnifies God's grace toward we who are the recipients of his mercy in the death of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> We've seen retribution. Pick up in verse 10. Next we see preparation. Preparation. Starting in verse 10. It says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. <clears throat> and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them, and at the place that in Hebrew, them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. <clears throat> Look at that fifth bold judgment. It's no longer on elements of creation. This is directly on the beast. And again, <clears throat> this follows the pattern of the book of Exodus. There was a plague of darkness. Sometimes we... I think we even miss out on the, the full significance of that plague of darkness. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was, was the living embodiment of the sun god, Ra. What do you want to do if, if you want to say to the whole world, to Pharaoh and all the Egyptians, the, the greatest super, superpower on the face of the earth at the time, what do you want to, how do you want to say, how, does God, how can God say, I rule, not Pharaoh? He strikes out the sun. How does, how does God say, don't fear the beast? The beast is just a man. The beast is just a man. 
So the beast that people worship, the beast that people serve, the beast that people bow down to his image. God strikes the beast, that beastly ruler or that beastly government. He strikes it with darkness. Who made the sun? So many people throughout the history of the, the, the world uh, have worshipped the sun. You look up at this great power, which you obviously need to live, and you think, that must be God. You have somebody to tell you, think it must be God. The Egyptians did it, the Assyrians did it. We're far too wise to do that, right? We don't, we don't worship things that light up. I mean, that would be silly, right? It would be silly for us to worship things that are made. We're a silly people. We are, we, are a, we are a silly and ridiculous people who do not worship the creator. Instead, we worship what he made. Everywhere, first world, second world, third world, all over the globe, people are worshiping what God made instead of God. God is able to strike our idols with darkness. These things that we bow down to, these things that are the light of our life, God is able to strike them with darkness. You look at how the people respond. Again, they, they bite their tongues. I, I, I really don't, I'm not sure I even understand the significance of that. They just, they're not going to repent. You almost want to cry out to God for mercy and they don't. They refuse. They, they do not repent of their deeds. They keep living the same way. What happens so often when people's idols are taken away from them? Do they, do they cease their idolatry? No, they, they cry and they wail because they lost their idol. I hope God takes away your idols. And I hope it leads to you repenting and trusting in God instead. May God take away all worthless idols that cannot save. Teach us to trust him. The sixth angel pours out his bowl in the great river Euphrates. So both for Rome and Israel, always the great kings, the great battles, the, the, the great threats of, of invasion came from the east. And so the symbolism here is the drying up the Euphrates so all the kings of the east can come over. And you see, you can see there that there are these, uh, this, this uh, kind of reference or this, this idea from the plague of frogs and the book of Exodus. Frogs were unclean animals. And so you have this unholy trinity, the dragon, who is Satan, the beast, who is the, uh, the beastly government or the beastly ruler from chapter 13. Uh, you have the false prophet, who is the second beast from chapter 13, the one who encouraged the people to bow down to the beast. They're this unholy trinity. And there are these demonic, frog-like demons that come out. These unclean spirits. And they do signs that deceive the nations. They, they are able to do things that demonstrate their power to bring the people together. To bring all the kings together. 
Uh, And they are gathering together for this great battle. This great battle on the last day. Psalm 2 talks about how the nations rage. The book of Zechariah gives this picture of this last battle uh, before Jerusalem. This last battle where you have on one side God and his Christ, Jesus Christ. And you have all the nations of the world, all the kings of the world who will not submit to Christ. And there's this great battle. It says they gather at, uh, in, the, in verse 16, they gather, gather at the place that in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo. Or Har Megiddo. That means the, the mountain of Megiddo. Doesn't mean a lot to us, but Megiddo was this great plain that was a little ways north of Jerusalem. And it's where all the great battles of Israel's history happened. So you look at uh, Judges 4 and 5. Uh, that's where uh, Barak leads the, the army of Israel down from Mount Tabor. Well, Mount Tabor is right there by the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo is this plain that is surrounded by these mountains. And, and Barak and Deborah lead them down and they defeat Sisera and the army. Uh, or uh, when Saul dies in battle. He dies on Mount Gilboa, which is in another mountain right there around Megiddo. Or Josiah is killed in a battle on the plain of Megiddo. Or uh, the, the battle at Mount Carmel, where Elijah faces down the prophets of Baal. That happens at Mount Carmel, which is right there around Megiddo. So, so you kind of have this, this great plain where all these battles happen. You have all these mountains surrounding it, and there's, there's going to come this rushing down of, of this battle between God and all the nations of the earth. And I think this is a, a symbolic way of talking about the last great battle between Christ, our king, and all the kings of the earth. God's going to face them down. And God is going to destroy the destroyers. God's going to bring down all the beasts all the beastly states, all the beastly governments, all those who refuse to submit, all those who in Psalm 2 will not kiss the Son, will not submit to him in fealty and make him their king. We're going to come back to that great battle in chapter 19. But for now, focus in on verse 15. It's a quote from Jesus. Behold... Listen up, I'm coming like a thief. The idea is thieves don't announce themselves. Thieves don't say, hey, you know, I'm actually going to roll by uh, about 2 a.m. And uh, so if you guys could be away from home, and that's when I'll smash the glass, and that's when I'll break in and take your stuff. That's not, that's not how thieves do it. Thieves don't announce themselves. They don't say, hey, I'm coming by. They're more, more like the, the cable company. They say, hey, we're coming anytime. You're not going to be ready. <clears throat> That's how God is, how Christ is. Christ is going to come and you're not going to know. So what do you have to have? You have to have somebody standing guard all the time. All the time. 24-7. Ready. How do you need to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ? You need to be vigilant. You need to persevere. You need to stay awake. He says, stay awake. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Stay awake. 
And I think we have to remember this against the background of all those, all those churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There were a lot of people, there were a lot of people in those churches who were visibly, it looked like they were a part of the church. And yet they were, they were going and they were worshiping idols and they were, they, were, they were listening to false teachers. They're not awake. Blessed is the one who stays awake. How do you, how do you stay awake? Yet you keep trusting in Jesus Christ. You keep worshiping Jesus Christ and Christ alone. You keep worshiping God and God alone. You don't bow down to idols. You stay awake. You endure. You stay vigilant. You trust Christ. You keep obeying Christ. You keep listening to Christ. Don't get sleepy. Don't get sluggish. Stay awake. He says, keep your garments on. You know, it's actually one church. You guys might remember this. The last church. Church at Laodicea. They boasted in their pride and in their arrogance. They boasted about their garments. Laodicea was famous for its garment industry. They had, they had beautiful, beautiful garments. They had these costly garments. They were, they were clothed very well, they thought. And Jesus Christ came to them and said, get garments from me. I'll clothe your nakedness. I'll clothe you. If you're not clothed by Jesus Christ, you're, you're naked. And you know what will happen to your nakedness? Verse 16, verse 15, you'll be, you'll be exposed. I think there's good reason to be fearful that a lot of people who are visibly a part of Christ's church in this present age are going to have their nakedness exposed at the return of Jesus Christ. We ought to make sure that's not us. We must persevere. We must endure. We must stay awake. We must be vigilant. We must be sober-minded. Stay awake so that when Christ comes, you're not exposed. You're not exposed for really being a compromised unbeliever. There are many in those churches bow down to idols, listen to false prophets. There are many who don't listen to the warnings. The warnings come as, as opportunities for us to repent, opportunities for us to see that there is no life apart from God. There's no, there's no eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. Let us turn. Let us turn from our sin. If necessary, let's wake up. Let's wake up so the thief doesn't come upon us and find us drunk and sleepy. Let's wake up. Be found in Jesus Christ. Be found ready and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ when he returns. Let's trust in Jesus Christ. Let's keep obeying Jesus Christ. Let's keep enduring for the name of Jesus Christ until he returns. We pray for us. Uh, Father, we praise you as the almighty maker of heaven and earth. You have made all things. You have made our bodies. Uh, we thank you for these bodies that you've given us. 
And for many of us, are so full of health, so full of vitality, so full of vigor. We praise you for our bodies. You are the maker of our bodies. Please grant that we would glorify you with our bodies. For those of us who suffer in our bodies, grant that we would keep trusting in you, trusting that Christ will raise our bodies. For those of us who are poor, grant that we would boast in our exaltation that Christ became poor so that we might become rich with eternal life. We don't have anything to trust in. For those of us who are rich, grant that we would boast in our humiliation, that all of our riches will be taken away, but our treasure, the treasure of Jesus Christ, will not be taken away. Please grant that we would put all of our confidence in Christ for life. We would not bow down to idols. We would not worship any powers, any rulers, any authorities, any pretenders. We would worship you and Christ only. Grant that we would trust in Christ to take away the wrath that we deserve. And that we would continue in vigilance all the way up until his return. In his name we pray. Amen.